Hello everyone, my name is Max Kituba and I'd like to welcome you to another week on the SME Empower podcast where we are on a mission to empower entrepreneurs to create a world of impact. Why? Because we believe that your success matters not only for yourself and your family but also for your community and the world at large. So we are very happy to have you because we are committed to giving you the information you need to become the best entrepreneur you can be. Thank you and welcome to another great episode. Three, two, one, and we're live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SME Empower podcast. I am your host, Max Kituba, and I'd like to officially welcome Eric Su, the managing partner of Clear Focus Law, where he advises and represents self-funded acquisition entrepreneurs through all facets and stages of acquisition deals in the SMB space. So welcome to the show. We are very happy to have you. Thanks, Max. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, yeah. So um, could you give us a little bit of a background into who Eric Sue is and how you got started in the business of SME acquisition? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, this isn't exactly something I set out to do. Um, and, and this is a little bit of a second life for me as far as my career. So I, I used to be a nine to five W2 employee working in government um, and always had an entrepreneur spirit. So even while doing that, I had a side hustle moonlighting gig, as some people call it, as a business lawyer. And early on, I, I worked with a lot of startups and did a lot of general business, helping people form companies, uh, close them down, everything in between. And really enjoyed that, but um, kind of fast forward 10, 10 years or so, that was like 13 years ago, I really started getting interested in mergers and acquisitions deals because I found that was one of the few areas in the law where you know everybody walks away a winner at the end of the day. And that was really appealing to me because so many areas of the law, it's like one person's a winner, one person's a loser, uh, you fight, uh, battles, and you know this is where everybody wants the same thing. So I really enjoyed that. And then in the last year, I kind of just fell into this space of SMB acquisition entrepreneurs uh, being a fast growing space and also really being a space where I enjoyed working with people who kind of had the same energy uh, where I remember working with folks in the startup world. Uh, I always like to say that it's kind of like startup, but there's a lot more chances of success and a lot more funding available. And so it's been a, a lot of fun working with individual acquisition entrepreneurs and uh, that's that's how I ended up getting into this space. And now this is all I do, just because I enjoy it so much. Wow, um, that's quite a story. Because um, something I noticed was you're really open about your story online. Um, mm. I remember there's a tweet that I actually just read um, recently that you talked about um, how you quit your longtime job on July 1st, 2022, without a trust fund huge financial runway or contracts replacing your income. So I have two mm -hmm. questions on that. Uh, sure. Would, yeah, yes. so what value would you say came from being employed before taking that leap? And what mm -hmm. finally got you to take that leap? Well, first of all, the, the, the value, man, I, I, I got, uh, I was fortunate enough in my nine to five that I was, uh, I was given a department to run. So I, was kind of an entrepreneur in a W-2 world. I managed my own department. I was able to 
really experiment with a lot of things such as uh, different HR and uh, hiring practices, managing people, uh, mentoring people. And so I took all that and really helped my clients with that, um, even as I help them uh, navigate the, the process of buying a business and then building from there. So absolutely transferable skill set from there. Um, and so super valuable um, to, to kind of answer the first part of your question. The, the second part, you know, I, that's something I plan to do for, I think the, the whole process of planning it was a five-year process. Um, I actually met my wife. And when we met, that was one of the first things we just, even before we started dating, you know, that kind of what attracted to us as to each other. We were both working nine to fives at the time, really both wanted something entrepreneurial, wanted something that would give us time freedom, freedom to travel, freedom really uh, enjoy life and, and do, do our own thing. And so basically from the moment we we started um, dating and then eventually got married, this was our plan. We had a, a launch date, uh, set that pretty early on. So July 1 wasn't an accident. It was a date that we've been planning for a long, long time. Well, that's quite interesting, um, especially being a family man and just having the support of your wife because um, you both actually took a huge risk. Um, so what do you think is the value of having that ability to take risks, not just for entrepreneurs, but for anyone in life? And how do you think about the importance of risk mitigation and timing mm -hmm. when taking risks? Sure. Uh, I think for, for kind of the entrepreneurial side of me always thinks, you know, anything in life that's worthy is going to come with risk. You know, everything from dating someone to, to proposing to get married, to thinking, hey, we want to have kids, to and all the way to, hey, let's let's just take the leap and leave our nine to fives. And, and we, we actually not just quit our jobs, but we uh, sold our house, uh, bought an RV, and we just travel on the road throughout the US. Um, and we're just traveling um, digital nomads. And so a number of risks on a number of uh, bases, but we really feel like, you know, the, the risk of not doing these things is a, we wouldn't get to experience it, and B, you know, we, we're just cut out this way. And so we re view risk a little differently. That being the case, we're not reckless by any means. We know we've got children to take care of and each other to take care of, and we've got a family to, to support. And so we try to do it in a calculated way, but um, – and so a lot of things we do to, to mitigate uh, the risk, we, we plan things out carefully. We, like I said, we took five years before we took the leap. So put a lot of things in order, had a business that was actually flourishing, um, had somewhat what of a financial runway and had, had uh, a lot of discussions about how it's going to work. So we, we, we take on risk um, and welcome it as entrepreneurs, but we also believe that we've got to do it in a calculated way with a good plan. No, that's um, very prudent of uh, both of you. Um, just going back on, on the social media, because, you know, I'm very fascinated by your presence on social media, uh, because you said that you've been active on social media for how long? Um, only since about September of last year on Twitter. Um, and that, that was kind of almost by accident as well. I, I've, I've been active in the past on social media, never thought about really growing my business that way. I realize that the content that you post isn't um, some run-of-the-mill self-promoting content. It's kind of content that really shows you care about entrepreneurship and find a lot mm -hmm. of joy in what you do. 
So how do you approach content creation, especially, you know, in your writing? Uh, like, is there a process? Are you going for certain themes? And what do you think the importance of social media is and has been in doing what you do? Um, yeah, th thank you. I, I appreciate that you enjoy my content. Um, and and, and my, my whole goal is to teach. You know, I, I really um, tell people that I'm... I'm I've got the skill set of a lawyer, the training of a lawyer, but really the heart of a teacher. I love teaching people how to do things. Glad you pointed out that in my content, I'm, I'm really trying to share knowledge because that's really my approach. I, I really kind of have a, an approach of a teacher and I enjoy teaching people how to do things even almost more than sometimes doing it for them. And so uh, I'm glad you saw that. And that, that is my approach is to share content that's practical, that's useful. Um, and, you know, along the way, I'm, I'm sure I'll demonstrate to them that I know what I'm doing, but really my goal is to help uh, empower people. Um, and when you ask me about my approach, I, I do have just a couple of topics that I usually try to focus on. And myself being someone who had a nine to five, uh, really wanted more freedom and, and took the leap and left it. Um, I really have a, a heart for people who are stuck in a nine to five grind and are entrepreneurial and want to do their own thing. And I really feel like buying a business is the easiest and best way to, to change that dynamic and be your own um, master, so to speak, and, and create freedom. So I'm passionate about reaching out to those folks. I talk a lot about, uh, you know, the nine to five, uh, leaving that, how to do it, and then how to do it by buying a business, and then all the way through to the whole process of buying a business and what that looks like. So those are my topics, and I really do try to approach it with the teaching approach. Oh, okay. Then uh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, particularly because you mentioned something about um, buying SMEs being something that is uh, a very accessible form of um, investment and entrepreneurship for a lot of people, yet it seems mm -hmm. like a lot of people haven't uh, really pinpointed that. Um, most people talk about stocks and bonds and T-bills, real estate, crypto, or even starting mm -hmm. their own companies. But not many people are educated on SME acquisition. So what value do you think people can find in pursuing this form of investment versus mm -hmm. other forms of investment, both financially or in any other way? Sure. I'm glad you asked that because that, that's, that's kind of the number one question that I um, find myself answering a lot of times for people who previously thought, hey, I, you know, I'm stuck in, a, in my nine to five. I'd love to go do something else. Usually their first you know, inclination is I want to start a business. And usually once I explain to them, hey, have you thought about this, this, and that, they start realizing that buying a business is easier and better. And here's why. I mean, when you start a business, I think the, the chances of business success is something like 10% because there's so many, there's so many headwinds. You know, you've got to have an idea. You've got to have the idea fit the market. You've got to have customers. You've got to have cash flow. You've got to have startup capital. You've got to find people that are either going to back you. Um, with investments or back you with with debt. Um, and those are all really difficult for a business that's starting up that's brand new. Um, contrast that with what my typical clients do is they find a business that's already profitable. It's already successful. They've already gone through the, you know, the, the product market fit equation. They know it fits. They've already they already have customers. They're already profitable. They're already, you know, cash flowing. And then on top of that, in this um, day and age, uh, just about everybody uh, can, can go get funding. So anybody can 
qualify for SBA funding. You know, not too many people are disqualified from doing that if they live here in the U.S. Um, and even even people who are foreign investors, if they can get partner up with uh, U.S. citizens or residents, they can qualify as well. Um, there's also lots of private funding for uh, business acquisitions, and so it's very accessible, and it's also very uh, the, the chances of success are so much higher. So I've read that statistically about 90% of these will be successful, as opposed to when you start a business, almost 90% are failing. And so that's why I, I encourage people to really consider uh, buying a business as opposed to starting one. That's a very interesting insight. Um, so assuming that I know nothing, which is in far from mm-hmm. the truth, I can assure you. <laughs> And I approached you with a desire to buy an SME. So mm-hmm. how would I go about assessing a great opportunity and approaching that market? Sure. I, I think the, the, the basics of people who are interested and I, I'm really trying to help people who, you know, really at their 101 level is getting educated. And so there's a few books that I recommend people read. Um, everybody uh, in, in the space should have read uh, the Harvard Business Review. Um, textbook on buying and growing a business. There's the the book uh, Buy Then Build um, uh, by, uh, boy, I can't remember the name of his name off the top of my head, but that's the basics is getting the knowledge of the space and what the idea of buying then building looks like. And then I encourage people to figure out where the funding is going to come from, because a lot of times that might drive what kind of businesses they look for. And so funding comes from the SBA that's going to back loans, um, similar to the, the way Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back mortgages. The federal government backs loans with the SBA. And then what other avenues, such as their own money, um, investors, and so figuring out where the money's going to come from, what their budget looks like, and then if they're looking at investors or banks, what they will and won't lend on, because that'll define what kind of business they can and can't buy. Some, you know, Sometimes some businesses uh, might look great, but if they can't find anybody that's going to fund it, then they can't buy it. And then once that's the case, I, I encourage people to kind of take a look at what their own skill sets are, uh, what, what they're good at, what they're interested in, and what industries that they might want to work at, a business in. You know, it's going to be a long, long haul, so it's got to be something they're interested in, and it's got to fit their skill set. And so a lot of people, for example, bring... Um, marketing skill sets or tech skill sets into businesses. And a lot of the businesses we're talking about here are historically very low tech businesses. So for example, um, popular businesses include home services business like HVAC or electrical or plumbing. A lot of them are very profitable, but they're very low tech. And so if someone can buy it and improve the technology, then they can really improve the profitability. And so once you figure out all the deal parameters, um, looking for businesses to buy is as simple as looking for listings, networking with brokers, um, networking with your own professional network. You know, I encourage people to talk to CPAs and lawyers and accountants, sorry, those are accountants, insurance agents, and figure out what's out there and what's available. And, and then they're, they're going to need to, to work on building a deal team uh, of people to help them evaluate the businesses when, once they find ones that they're interested in. They can talk a little bit about who, who might be on the deal team. Because um, yes, usually that's a question that comes up. You know, um, yeah. They're going to need people usually to help them with 
the basics of due diligence, although sometimes people do the basics themselves, and they should be able to do the basics themselves. Like, does this business fit my criteria? Is this business really profitable? You know, does this business operationally uh, make sense? Those are kind of like the really early uh, litmus test things that they should be able to, you know, evaluate for themselves, just like the very uh, tip of the iceberg issues. And then they're going to need to build a deal, deal team that can help them really dig in. And the areas that they're going to want to dig into, again, are operational, operational due diligence. Um, you know, does this, is this business model working? Uh, what are the competitors out there? Th things of that nature. And then the two big ones um, that are going to make or break a deal are, are going to be financial due diligence, where they get someone who is a M&A trained, often a CPA or some sort of a fractional CFO type that can help them evaluate the finances and make sure that the business is actually making the money that they think it's making and that they're actually getting the money um, in, in the door. They call it a proof of cash or a quality of earnings um, uh, diligence. And so they go through in detail, comb through their financial records, compare it to their bank statements, make sure everything matches up. And so that's, that's one of the two biggies. And the other one's going to be the legal due diligence. That's where I come in and help. Uh, clients review all the legal uh, underpinnings of the company all the way from who owns the company is it formed properly what do the contracts look like regulatory issues trademark hr are they managing their employees properly are they meeting minimum wage uh, um, all, everything under the sun there to make sure that the business can be purchased first of all um, that the deal can happen and then whatever legal risks are involved in the deal we can handle they're, they're always legal risks in every business because you're buying someone's existing business, right? And so, you know, there's, there's a million things that go into a business and we need to, you know, make sure we've covered all that, make sure it's all done right. And then um, after all that's done, then you can decide whether the business is worth buying or not. Wow, just, um, just to follow up on that, because that seems like uh, quite um, a tedious process, then how long does that take? Usually, um, quality of earnings, uh, you know, while I'm not involved directly in that, I, I do watch on the sidelines because, you know, usually they pass it on to me when quality of earnings is done. They can usually get that done in about three weeks. Um, uh, it depends on how quickly the sellers respond to requests for information. So I, I have deals right now that are dragging on to a month just because the sellers take forever. And sometimes there's some trust issues, right? You're asking a business owner to hand over their financials and they're like, wait a second, uh, what do I, what do we ask for right here? So um, it depends on how quickly they respond, but usually I understand that uh, quality of earnings uh, professionals can usually get it done in, in about three weeks. For me, um, my process of legal diligence can take up to a month, um, sometimes up to 40 days, again, depending mostly on the speed of response from the sellers. If they respond with everything within the first week of our request, we can usually get it done in three weeks. Wow, okay, yeah. Thanks for that clarification. So um, Charlie Manga is someone I look up to and he um, mm -hmm. he has this interesting trick when he thinks about any problem or any situation, which is what is the reverse of the situation? So. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was an SME owner who wanted to sell my business, I know you don't work on the sales side, but mm -hmm. in your opinion, from your experience, what would I need to work on to make it an attractive investment option for someone else? And eventually mm -hmm. when the time came, how would I market it and find potential buyers? 
Oh, sure. I, I actually have worked quite a few deals in the past on uh, on the sell side, and I, I've got some general counsel clients that I still do uh, some exit planning on. So I, I do have some insight on that. And so I'm glad you asked. Um, the, the big deal is making sure, uh, especially in the size that we're talking about, we're talking businesses that are worth, you know, in the single digit millions on the high side and, you know, um, is to make sure that it can function without you. And so making sure it's a turnkey business is usually the number one priority. Um, when I, when I talk to anybody about packaging up their business to sell that the biggest problem with most businesses that where the owner just walks away and they can't sell it and they just have to close it down is because it's essentially an alter ego of the business owner. Like if the business owner went on vacation for three months, they would come home and there'd be no business. Uh, if you know what I mean? And so I think that's the number one thing I would recommend to people selling their business to get it ready is to make sure that you've got systems and you've got people that can run the business in your absence, because unless you have that, you really don't have a business. You just kind of have a, you know, it's just you. That's the number one thing. Um, I, I could talk about a few of the other ones as, as well. If yes, like. so. yes, please. Sure. And, you know, get, getting the house in financial order is important on two fronts. Number one is the fact that most businesses in this um, or this size range will be valued uh, based on what they call a multiple of SDE. And so SDE stands for seller's discretionary earnings. And it's taken... Um, it's calculated by taking their EBITDA, which is their earnings before interest, uh, depreciation, taxes, and amortization, and adding back things that are like discretionary for the owner to, to pay. It's a little bit of a complicated formula, but the idea being that a lot of small business owners will do creative tax things to reduce their taxable income. And if they keep doing that, then at the end of the day, when it comes time to sell, it's going to be that worth that much less. And so, for example, if a business is making a million dollars a year, but um, the owner does a lot of creative tax strategies to bring that taxable income down to 500,000, well, the, when it's time to sell, the pricing is going to be based on a multiple of 500,000 as opposed to a multiple of a million dollars. And so that's the first thing I recommend sellers think about is plan ahead. And usually it's going to be three years before they want to sell stop those creative tax strategies because they're going to really hurt their pricing. So that's number one. And number two is I would recommend they make sure to get a, a CPA um, who manages their books because the worst thing that can happen is they get a great offer and it gets bogged down in financial due diligence because they can't produce what they need and the deal dies. And that it's not uncommon for that to happen. Um, if if they can't figure out by reviewing their books and matching things up, whether they actually make the money, the buyer is eventually probably going to go away. So getting their books managed properly. And then, you know, on, on a slightly less important basis, um, but still important is making sure that their legal documents are, are right. Those usually can be fixed. The financials are harder to fix, but I recommend that people uh, keep track of that as well as they move forward and prepare to sell. Oh, thanks. Um, those are very um, interesting insights um, that I think that the audience is really going to find valuable. Um, so just on a, uh, to, to turn the conversation around a bit, 
Um, can you share a success story about how your work has helped promote freedom and independence for an entrepreneur and a small business owner? Sure. I mean, um, can't go too much into details and individual clients, but you know, I, I, I've worked with a lot of clients who are W2 or nine to five um, folks who you know, by the closing of the deal that we work on, they move across the country and now they're managing, you know, I'll just give you examples of businesses that they're managing. I've got a client who's now managing a, a, a cleaning business, a commercial janitorial business, and that is his ticket to freedom. Um, I, I know I've got another client who's managing a, a tow truck business, even though that may not be his, I don't, I don't think he's leaving his, uh, his nine to five, but that is the beginnings of the portfolio of businesses that he's going to manage instead of his business. Um, and every single one of these, it's either one step toward freedom or it is freedom because it depends on the size of the deal. When my clients are buying a deal that's $4 million or bigger um, in terms of the, the purchase price, usually it's it's going to set them free. Um, it's going to replace their income. Um, and, you know, it does require a certain size of business before they can comfortably leave for example, a well-paying job and do that. But every single one of these deals that I'm working on, those are just a couple of the examples. I've got another one that I closed for a client who's got a, a, a digital marketing business, and that's going to be part of the portfolio that's going to set him free from his his uh, nine to five. And um, it, the list goes on, and the, the industries that I've helped clients close on range from, like I said, digital businesses, I'm helping a client close on a couple of SaaS businesses that's going to build a portfolio of, and that's going to end up setting them free. And all these are, are just um, either pieces of the freedom puzzle for them or it's the actual, this is setting me free because I'm going to move there and take over this business. And that's going to be what I do instead of, you know, showing up every day for a nine to five. Wow, um, that's, really, that's really cool. So what are the most important things that keep you motivated as you keep growing in business and life? Boy, um, it's, it's these success stories. It's the ability to help these people really radically change their life trajectory for something that is, is uh, so much more meaningful for them and to just be a part of that. Like I, I was saying earlier, I don't get to do that as a lawyer um, very often in, in the you know, legal industry. And that's why for a long time, you know, I, I kind of was a little down on the fact that I was a lawyer. You know, I think every lawyer goes through that because it's such a destructive um, line of work. In almost every other area of law, you're fighting. You know, there's an adversarial system. One person loses, one person's win. You're suing, you're defending. They win, you win, they lose, you lose. Here, everybody's a winner. Um, when we walk away from a deal um, that's closed and those are so, so satisfying, the seller walks away a millionaire my client gets to walk in and do a successful business um, and they, they get to have their freedom and get to really run something. It's exciting. I get to, to manage something that's been successful and built for a long time. And I like checking in on, on everybody that I close the deal for. I usually check in on them, you know, 30, 60, 90 days out, see how everything's going. And I love when I talk to them and like, this is awesome. It's, it's exciting. My employees are fantastic. Things are working out even better than I thought. Um, or there's there's a, been a couple of you know small things, but I worked through them, and you know I'm just getting the hang of of problem solving in this field, and this is great. And it that's that's what keeps me going. It's it's the success stories and the uh, everybody's you know happy 
Um, <laughs> and when, when deals happen, everybody walks away happy, and it's it's just a great feeling. No, I love that. I love that. Um, particularly because on this podcast, we are on a mission to empower entrepreneurs to create mm-hmm. a world of impact. So the traditional sure. last question um, that we usually have on this podcast is, what kind of world do you hope to create through your entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, I hope, I hope to create a world where people are not afraid to, A, uh, have, have dreams of, of what their life looks like, and B, um, take the steps every single day to make that happen, and to take the, the measured risks and actions that make it happen. Because... You know, I, I feel like um, so many people are stuck. There's, there's the famous words, uh, living a, a life of quiet desperation. And I, I feel like that's a lot of people that I talk to. And my goal and, and hope would be to empower these people so that they can say, you know what? Um, I can take charge of my life. I only get to live it once. And mm-hmm. whatever it is that my dream life looks like, I can make it happen instead of just like coasting to the end, you know? Like I talked to so many people, they're like, I hated my job and I just coasted to the end and retirement. And now I'm just retired and kind of aimless. And, you know, everything is just kind of reactive and, and, and numbing. And, and I'm hoping to change that and help empower people so they know they can do something about it. What, you know, part of it, it's like maybe, maybe buying a business isn't for you. That's, that's what I think is the easiest and best way to do it. And that's what I talk about all the time. But I also talk about just like, you know, if your nine to five is, um, you know, your golden handcuffs, you can do something about it. If your nine to five is something you love, great. Embrace it and, you know, go in there excited. But I, I just want to, I hope to create a world where people are just empowered um, and know they've got the choice to build their life the way they want it. Wow, that's um, very inspiring. And I'm sure that the audience will have taken so much from that. Uh, I know that I have. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on. Um, I've loved having you here, honestly. Well, thanks, Max. Very, very kind of you. Um, again, it's been fantastic uh, to be on the podcast. I uh, really enjoyed meeting you and uh, I'm glad we got to meet. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that's so so cool with, with social media. You get to meet all sorts of great people and uh, us meeting this way has sure been one of them. Yeah, no, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much uh, for actually picking up the call. There's many people who do it. And uh, yeah, so I definitely hope that you uh, continue to make an impact and you continue to uh, grow your business and um, and do well in life. Thank you so much. Thank you. You as well. Let's stay in touch. That's it from us for now. And hope that you all have a wonderful week and join us again next time on the SME Empower podcast. Thank you.